We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com. However you're uh, looking at this time of the year, just know that uh, it is a reflective time for me uh, because it was 24 years ago this weekend that I decided to retire from campaign life. I was uh, in Michigan working on a campaign. Uh, The Masters was on, so it was Easter Masters weekend. The weather was great. I was living in a stale corporate apartment uh, as I traveled the country and decided that there's this thing called the internet and it was way cooler than working on campaigns. I had friends starting dot coms. And so it was April 1998 uh, that I decided uh, it was time to be done. It was time to be done with campaigns. And so uh, I'm reflective this weekend. One of the things I'm reflective of is that I wish the weather were warmer and I were golfing and I wish I was in a warmer place golfing. But you know, uh, as we look at the year, I, I think that spring should give us some hope, some fresh air, some new energy, some optimism here in Minnesota. The legislature was gone this past week, uh, and hopefully they reflected. Campaign finance reports came out on Friday, and you can start to see how things are lining up. Who's in the lead? Who's loaning themselves money? Who's raising more money? These are just a few indicators before we have the state convention for Democrats and Republicans. The Republican one obviously has a lot more at stake. Who's their nominee for governor going to be? Who's their nominee for attorney general going to be? And will there be a primary in either race? The first district fundraising came out. It's all pretty even. Uh, But the legislature has a lot of work to get done yet this year. There's also President Biden's announcement that E15 fuel would be available all summer. Hopefully this brings some stability for farmers uh, to move forward. And then we've still got these kind of patchwork ways in which cases in the state are being handled when it comes to police actions. And we're going to talk about that as well. So we'll check in with Joe Tamburino on legal issues. We'll check in with Brian Thalman on how corn growers are feeling about the E15 announcement. And then we'll end the show with Mary LaHammer on what she sees in the legislature in these campaigns 
and what she looks to going forward. I'm Blaise Olson. We'll be back on Sunday Take right after this. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice-cold reward. Medela is the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know, the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. You are a fighter. And Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Port, Chicago, Illinois. The first cup of coffee here on Sunday Take is with Brian... Thalman. Uh, Brian's with Minnesota Corn Growers. And this past week, President Biden uh, gave uh, notice that he wanted a waiver for E15 fuel so that uh, it would be available all summer. And Brian Thalman joins me now. Uh, He's a corn farmer. He understands this. He follows it. Uh, Brian, thanks for joining me. What is the news that President Biden gave this waiver, you know, mean for the ethanol market or corn farmers this summer? Oh, boys, it's, it's great news. We have uh, been dealing with uh, a lot of frustration in the biofuel industry in recent years with uh, the continuation of some of these uh, waivers and so have been granted by EPA and, and just challenges having access to the marketplace. So we thought we were going on the right path about two years ago when the decision was finally made at EPA to allow a year-round sale of E15. And E15 is also known as unleaded 88, and that's what we ask our consumer audience to, to look for at the, the gas pump. But this fuel was approved to be year, used year-round. Then there was a, another court challenge last summer, which struck that down. So in an effort to get back on the right path, uh, this was a necessary action to... Uh, by industry some time to get a formal fix put in place once again. You know, that's what I think people don't understand is that this isn't something that's new, the year round approval. It's something that had been approved before. As you said, it's been caught up in the courts. It's been caught up in regulatory uh, system. Obviously Biden is using high fuel prices as his reason to do this, but it would seem that this is one of the, kind of uh, opportunities for biofuels to become more mainstream, more popular, uh, to kind of get past this regulatory legislative uh, kind of mess that's been the last few years between waivers and no waivers. Is that your sense um, when you talk to representatives is that they do want to get past that and have it be a year-round fuel? It is. These decisions really need to be made at the federal level. We don't want a patchwork of rules among all states because that makes it very challenging to follow. But the the whole E15 situation has kind of become a political football. And when you go way back 
when when E10 first came on the radar 30 years ago, E15 was not even being considered. So the rules that were written never included it, not because it wasn't good. E15 is a better fuel than E10. Right. As less evaporative emissions coming out, even the gas tank when you're filling, E10 is better than E0. E15 is better than E10. So it, it makes common sense, but because it wasn't thought of back then, it didn't get put into the rule. So now you know, these challenges come about and, and big oil, of course, keeps you know, feeding this. I mean, that industry is, is worried about losing market share. And we're looking uh, as a group of uh, agriculturalists and biofuel producers as a way to, yes, it increases demand for product, but you know, my farm goes back 145 years. My great, great grandfather settled here. You talk about sustainability. Everything we do is making it better for the future. And we are just convinced in agriculture that by, by growing crops, the, the benefits that we're able to produce, uh, you know, having a renewable product that we can use for food and fuel and everything, but we are just not given the, the opportunity to, uh, to get this product to market. Brian Thalman's my guest. We're talking about President Biden's announcement this week for the E15 waiver. Brian, one of the, you know, pieces that, you know, kind of stands out and and we hear something about is kind of this food versus fuel debate. Uh, should, you know, should we make sure that corn is being used for food and not fuel? Um, when you talk about, you know, production, when you talk about the market, um, is is there a difference? Does it matter? Is is the market for corn for fuel different than the market of corn for food? And, you know, or is there just plenty of corn and th- this is a good use of it? Well, I think I'm very passionate about this point. This whole rhetoric about food versus fuel is completely false, completely fake. And again, there's just been some negative news put out there, but I would like to set the record straight for all the viewers. When you take a kernel of corn to produce ethanol from that kernel of corn, all you do is take the starch from the kernel that produces ethanol. All the protein, all the other nutrients are left over. The same kernel of corn produces ethanol and produces a high-value livestock feed. So when they say 40% of the corn in this country is processed into ethanol, that's true. We're taking the starch out of 40%, but that entire 40% uh, also is providing the protein and other rich nutrients that are going to feed the world as well. And that ends up, you know, on, on the human food uh, side or used for human food. The corn that's used that we eat is a different type of corn. That would be yep. sweet corn. Uh, we have never touched that market. There's great plenty of that corn. So uh, agriculture is able to meet meet all demands without having uh, anybody hurting in the process. As we think about this upcoming planting season, as we think about the markets the last couple of years, the drought, um, A, how's your farm done? B, what are you hearing from different farmers about how they're feeling about spring planting season? If we can get past this little chili patch here, hopefully we can uh, get some crops in the ground. We will. We always have in the past. We will in the future. Uh, <laughs> farmers in general have to be an optimistic bunch. So um, the cool weather now is probably better than in May. 
you know, the opportune time for planting yeah. in the southern half of Minnesota is the last week of April, first 10 days of May. So we get the cold weather passed and things warm up in the, the drier areas in western Minnesota and the Dakotas. I think the snow is miserable now, but it's probably a welcome relief to get some moisture as that snow melts, some moisture should soak in the ground. And there's been a pretty significant recharge of the soils. So uh, I think things are setting themselves up to be a, be a good year once we get some heat. Uh, what are the other issues? I mean, obviously, farmers have had some challenges on many levels the last few years, from the drought to COVID to the pandemic to supply chain processing. What's the mood? How do you feel? Is it, you know, you feel like you guys are past the worst of the worst if we have a good good season and good weather this summer? Well, again, that optimism has to remain. You know, we are coming off of uh, six or seven years of depressed commodity prices, you know, from about 2014 to 2020. Yeah. As COVID hit, people thought, oh, boy, here we here we go. It's only going to get worse. But uh, due to some issues you know, out of our hands, uh, weather problems in South America and, and uh, you know, finally getting China back at the table, uh, procuring the product that they they need and want from our country and actually being able to, to uh, import some from us, from the U S that helped bring commodity prices back up. Now the, the bigger challenge that you mentioned is some of the supply chain issues and the, the cost of our inputs. Fertilizer is a world traded product. Yep. And you know, with the unfortunate uh, tragic events happening over in Ukraine, that's, you know, messing up uh, supply movement of fertilizer it might be coming out of some of those regions Maybe it wasn't fertilizer coming to the U.S., but it was fertilizer that they were going to export to someplace else, which now changes the flow. So that is a huge concern about increased fertilizer costs and other costs. Um, we will get through it, but uh, we hope there's some end soon, to, especially some of the logistical issues. We've got ports backed up. We've got problems with truck and, and rail markets as well. Got it. Well, Brian, uh, Brian Thalman, my guest, he farms near Glencoe, Minnesota. He's a, uh, on the National Corn Growers Board, and uh, we'll be checking in throughout the summer. I know if I don't see you sooner, I'll see you at Farm Fest. So thanks for checking in on Sunday Take. Thank you. When we come back, we're going to check in with Joe Tamburino. A lot of legal movements this week, uh, kind of some that were transparent and some that weren't. You're listening to Sunday Take on News Talk 830 WCCO. We're back on Sunday Take. I'm Bloy Solson, your host. Joining me now is Joe Tamburino. Joe's a attorney in town. He's a media analyst for legal issues, and he watches a lot of these cases closely from the hearings to the filings. And it was kind of a busy week, but it also prompts a lot of questions about after two years nearly since George Floyd, between federal and state court, between filings and hearings. Why does it seem like there's not always a consistency when we release data, when we don't release data? And since courts and lawyers are generally protocol-driven, it would seem that there might need to be some more consistency. And I know that's been an effort here in Minnesota for a long time, but Joe joins me now. Joe Tamburino, thanks for joining me on Sunday Take. Thanks for having me, boys. So um, let's just start with the the hearing earlier this week in the case of the three officers in state court. It was held after hours. It wasn't 
open to cameras. Um, is that a, is that a scheduling issue? Is that a, what, what, how, and how does that play with, you know, the federal charges that were already, you know, taken care of? I found it highly unusual. And here's why judge Cahill very early on when Mr. Chauvin and the three co-defendants were all joined together, issued an order that there would be cameras in the courtroom, that everything would be live streamed, whether it's a hearing, a motion hearing, a jury selection and the trial. Well, of course, that all happened with Mr. Chauvin and even with the three co-defendants during some motion hearings. But then with this hearing the other week, uh, the judge decided to do it after hours and without live streaming. So that was a violation of his own order. And I found it really odd that they would do it after hours. Minnesota doesn't have night court. We've never had night court. And I simply don't understand why it was done at 5 p.m. with limited seating for media. I mean, it was it was the opposite of transparency. So um, as you think about that, it, it, quote, the opposite of transparency, do you think, I mean, is it is it it's all in Judge Cahill's decision, right, on when that hearing happens. But do you think there's input or filings or even conversations that the public doesn't hear about that would cause him to schedule that hearing at five o'clock? Well, that's a great question, because if there were filings, we would know about that because filings are public. Even when they're sealed, we know that there was a sealed public filing. However, the one thing that that all judges have at their disposal, and Judge Cahill did it quite a bit during the Chauvin trial, is what's called in-chambers discussions. Mm -hmm. Uh, These discussions that happened in his office were not recorded. Uh, We don't have a transcript of them. There was no live streaming, so we don't know what happens. Now, many judges do that. They have conversations with the parties in chambers, and we don't know what happens. So if this was a scheduling issue, it surely wasn't filed as one. And if there were any discussions, they were totally off the record because the public is unaware of it. And um, and in, a, in would those discussions be more in this case of these three officers because it's a high profile case, do you think, or more frequent or more in depth? I don't know about the frequency, but being in depth, yes, absolutely. Because here's why. To do a hearing after hours, I mean, the courts close at 4.30. Yes, when there's a trial, sometimes uh, you'll go a little bit later because the jury wants to work later. But normally, business ends at 4.30. And to actually schedule a hearing after business hours at 5 p.m. is very unusual. I mean, we have a huge courthouse. I think there's approximately 65 or 67 judges. There's plenty of courtrooms. We don't have the the same COVID restrictions we had before. It's much more open today. So there's plenty of time. Got it. My guest is Joe Tamburino. We're talking about a series of legal issues here. Transparency, no transparency. The other big story this week driven by a case uh which judge cahill has a connection to too but not uh, in the release of the information was the release of from the bca of all the documentary you know the search warrants we had seen we had seen one camera in the case of amir Locke, but we saw all the cameras everything that came out this week you know We've we just we follow this much more closely now in this environment, in this city, based on the incidents we've had. And obviously, there's kind of many considerations on when to release body camera footage. But in this case, it seems as though I'll just say the 
the uh, the amount of video, the amount of information um, was much more in the release of all of it rather than what was kind of selectively released before. As you look at the case of Amir Locke, where there are no charges uh, against the officers, what's your takeaway of how both you know prosecutors, uh, investigators look at these cases now uh, and what the public does see, doesn't see, and when they see it? Well, with the Amir Locke case, there was a complete failure to have transparency. And here's why. All body-worn camera, quite frankly, all um, investigative material, while a case is being investigated before charging or before declining a charge, is confidential data. It's governed by our statutes, data practice, and other laws. So that's clear. However, the authorities, the police chief, the attorney general, the lead prosecutor, they can release certain materials if they so wish. And here it becomes the issue. If they are going to release materials, wouldn't they release materials that show the whole picture? Because in this case, with the attorney general, county attorney, with other people who were involved, and I don't know to the extent of who was involved, the only thing that was released early on was a body-worn camera from what I believe was the fourth or fifth officer entering Mr. Locke's apartment. And that only showed Mr. Locke poking his head up with the gun on the side of the couch. However, now that we have all of these other videos, uh, there were many videos uh, specifically from two officers, which clearly showed what actually happened. That was only half the picture that we got from the original body-worn camera release. What we actually know now is that when the officers entered, Mr. Locke poked his head up from the end of the couch, turned his head, faced the officers, the TV was on, and then he went down back under the covers, moved around quite a bit, and then poked his head up on the side of the couch, only this time holding a gun. It changes the whole dynamic. Yeah, no, it, it is. And that's where, I mean, I feel like, I guess, um, look, there's a lot of pressure on the investigators. There's a lot of pressure on the police and the mayor to release, you know, images for us to know. And we're an impatient audience. We're an impatient public. Um, and, you know, trust is a major issue here. So let's pivot on that and talk about trust. As an attorney, obviously, the protocols, the system we have of justice in this country is built on innocent until proven guilty and a trust in the system. Um, it's probably one of the largest pillars that our society needs to trust. Are there things that we need to do permanently or changes to these process and the rollout of information that you, Joe, think um, would be helpful in kind of you know, renewing trust or deepening trust in the system uh, during these times that are, it's different? Let's face it, we're in a different era right now. Do you have thoughts on that? Yes. First of all, I completely agree with you. Trust is of utmost importance. Whether you're on the defense or the prosecution side, both parties need to have trust that everyone is playing by the rules, everyone is going by the laws, and everyone has respect for the parties. And 99.9% .9 of the time, that really does happen. It actually is a very good system. However, in situations where, say, a prosecutor has all of this information and decides to release some of it, 
but not the best parts that would show the entire scene, that's problematic. You see, because the prosecutor, whether it's the attorney general, county attorney, chief of police even, or BCA, they don't have to release anything. The law is on their side. They can simply say, this is under investigation and we're not releasing anything. However, they also have the power to say, okay, we're going to release some things in order to give the public an idea, perhaps quell certain types of uh, anger that's out there, such as we saw a couple of years ago when that disturbed man shot himself on Nicollet Avenue. Uh, Then Chief Arredondo immediately released uh, the video from the police camera that was in that location because people thought this gentleman was shot by the police and he wasn't. He killed himself. And that worked because the chief at that time uh, released the best video possible showing the situation. In the Amir Locke situation, no, the best video was not released early on. That's clearly the case now that we could see all of the videos. Joe Tamarino is my guest. Finally, as we wrap here, Joe, and talk about that. Cameras in the courtroom. Many states have it. Minnesota doesn't. We, ha- we saw an exception uh, in the Potter trial, we saw an exception in the Chauvin trial. Is there the populace, the populism? Is there time when you talk to judges, when you talk to other attorneys? Is now the time for a public push, a legislative push uh, on the judiciary to try to make cameras in the courtroom happen? Absolutely. That is the height of transparency, because then you get to see what happens in court. Think about the situation with uh, Mr. Chauvin, Ms. Potter, we got to see everything. We got to see jury selection, motion hearings, the trial itself. That's what the public needs because it builds that trust and transparency in the system. And right now, the Minnesota Supreme Court is considering changing the rules, and I hope they do, to allow cameras in the courtroom, except for certain situations, obviously in juvenile cases, or specifically showing witnesses who are, say, cooperating individuals, informants. And most states already have these rules. So I think it's time has come. We really have to do that. And what's interesting is, like the Chauvin case, at the beginning of the Chauvin case, the prosecutors were completely against having cameras in the courtroom. Since that time, tables have turned. Now the prosecutors want cameras in the courtroom and the defense attorneys don't. But I think to have a consistent rule of permitting cameras is absolutely the way to go. Do you think judges are changing their tune on that? Maybe as they're younger, as older judges retire uh, and are lawyers changing their tune on that in general, whether it's prosecutors, defense attorneys? Yes. And I think all types of judges, meaning young, maybe inexperienced and older and quite experienced. I know several judges who have been on the bench for many years, great judges, great jurists, who now believe, yes, we should have cameras in the courtroom. Looking back on their trials, looking back on what they've done in their decades of experience, and now they realize the value of cameras. So I think most people in the system and in the general public are going to get behind that. Joe Tamarino, thanks for joining me on Sunday Take. Thank you so much. When we come back, we'll check in with Mary LaHammer. The legislature had the week off, but they've got a lot of work to do, or don't they? between now and May 23rd when they adjourn. I'm Blaise Olson. This is Sunday Take. Well, as we finish up Sunday Take this week for the last cup of coffee, my good friend, fellow goalie parent, Mary LaHammer joins me on this Easter Sunday. Uh, Mary? Yes. The legislature was on break. Uh, So we kind of had a quiet week there. Finance reports came out. Legislature is going to come back this next week. 
Do you sense there's any momentum for them to get much done between now and the end of May? I don't think so, quite honestly. You know, there was this famous line a couple of weeks ago when uh, Senator Dave Tomasoni got his bill passed for ALS research, and it was the first bill signing. Everybody was back in person in the governor's reception room. And I only half jokingly at the time threw out a question and said, could this be the pinnacle, the the highlight of the entire session? (laughs) And people joked, but I was only half kidding. Because I don't know how much more, you know, landmark legislation can and will get done. Again, they don't have to do anything. The budget is balanced. They just have $9 billion to spend, which is enticing. But it's also enticing to take it to the election and hold that money back and see what each party can or cannot do if they take over more of state government. So I I suspect this, this could go all the way to the election and, and keep that all that money on the bottom line, aside from maybe doing something about workers or unemployment. But I don't know. They've been at that for months already before session. You know, it's it's interesting you say that. I was talking to some other people this week and I said, I think Tom Bach wants a bonding bill. Mm-hmm. I think the governor wants a tax bill. Mm-hmm. And I think the House wants a spending bill. And if they all three want something, then maybe something gets done, but that kind of deal doesn't happen until, you know, doesn't come together till May 20th, somewhere in there. So I just don't know what we're going to do for the next month other than watch them battle over other things like sports betting and, uh, you know, bonus checks and things like that. So. Yeah, I think we'll be talking about sports betting, maybe, uh, you know, more access to uh, micro brews and beer. I think we're going to be talking about beer and betting. <laughs> well, you know, I, you know, I'm not opposed to either one of those, but, you know, I do work on the beer issue. And so full disclosure, as always, that, uh, you know, maybe, maybe there's a, maybe there's a compromise to be made there. Or maybe, as I heard, the Senate was like, ah, we don't need any policy this year. Um, on many issues, whether it's liquor or environmental issues or anything like that. So I, I do think Republicans are more likely to be like, mm, not a lot we need to get done. And, and I think that kind of pivots us to the next issue, which is the campaign. Mm-hmm. You know, Republicans feel really good about their chances of winning, um, but they still have to figure out who their gubernatorial candidate is. They still have to run the race. Um, The party money is, uh, you know, I think it's a massive, it is a massive gap between what the DFL raised versus what Republicans raised. And that's always a risky calculation in Minnesota, which can be very volatile. Where do you, when you look at the Republican field, what are you hearing? What are you seeing about kind of who's in the best position and what that convention might look like? Yeah, it's funny you bring up money because, you know, in TV, I don't typically spend a ton of time looking at campaign finance reports. It doesn't make a great visual for TV, but I do think the numbers today are notable. And I look at the press release I have sitting in my email box right now that says DFL party raises 50 times as much as Minnesota Republican Party, 50 times. That's actually notable. That's interesting. Democrats are doing very well in the money game. And that also translates to the gubernatorial race. You know, Governor Dayton right. is out raising, has more cash on hand, raised more. Absolutely. But as you know, there's one of him 
against the yep. bevy of Republicans. And I do think there's a couple of standouts. You know, Scott Jensen still looks like he's at the top of the heap in terms of support, interest, and money. Kendall Qualls, though, for a short campaign, I think brought in a notable amount mm-hmm. of money. And there is some interest. So it does feel like, the you know, it might be the two of them. I, I'd be curious if that's your sense as well. Well, that's my sense. I mean, I think that that's my sense. And obviously the delegate game is one of those that's tough to track. So as we look at kind of tracking that delegate piece, you know, the favorite, I like to say in the last uh, two big opportunities, uh, 2010 uh, and uh, 2018, where Republicans were going to nominate somebody, somebody went in as the favorite and and the other person lost, I guess, 28, I meant 20, 2002 and 2010. So in t- 2002, Brian Sullivan was the favorite and Tim yep. Pawlenty won. And in 2010, Marty Seifert was the favorite and Tom Emmer won. And yep. this race just feels much more like that to me than the, the more recent ones. And so I think about that. And if, if Jensen's ceiling is 40%, then that means the 60% that somebody needs to get endorsed is going to come from the collection of all the other candidates. Uh, and if there's some sort of alliance there and, you know, and, and that endorsement means a lot for Republicans uh, historically. It and has, so, yeah. The question is, will it continue though? I do think that's the open question is whether a primary does actually settle things this time through. Yeah, no, that's, yeah. that's right. One uh, last piece on that is, and this is kind of the next thing that we sit around and wait for and we dig into is who's going to run as running mates. And I think one of the big questions, especially when you see Kendall Qualls raise the most money is, will Michelle Tafoya, one of his campaign co-chairs join? And does this kind of set up, you know, uh, Qualls versus Jensen, National Football League personalities, Matt Burke, Michelle Tafoya. And I think that then makes it a more national race for November. If Absolutely. one of those Could two you see debates. Are... Yeah. Oh, Matt yes. Burke versus Michelle Tafoya. I think we would host that debate on TPT and maybe get some sports fans to tune in. <laughs> exactly. No, no. And these are the dynamics. Yep. Yeah. Uh, really. Last race. The other thing, if I can yeah. jump in voice too, is we didn't men- mention Gazelka. I do think Paul Gazelka is still in this race and, Probably the most notable thing that happened with him is that he got the police officers endorsements and public safety is still a big issue. We haven't mentioned it yet. And it might be the best issue that Republicans have to kind of use against Democrats. I think it is one of the top two or three issues that Republicans have. And we saw that KSTP poll this week that just spending on crime prevention is voters aren't they want people they want accountability and they want people to be, quote, tough on crime. the other race that we're watching, and it's tough to read, is this Republican, this race in the first congressional district. Um, not, you know, it's not as much about money, but delegates. I'm finding that it's really hard to get a sense with no TV, no polls, anything, and these candidates are running like it's an endorsement race. When in reality, they have a primary uh, that's going to kind of establish a front runner in May as well. Yeah, it's a hard one to read. You know, if you look at endorsements and just kind of mainstream buzz, it does seem that former lawmaker Brad Finstead, you know, picked up some fellow Republican congressional endorsements from within the party. 
I think that that separates him from the pack. But Jeremy Munson is not to be overlooked. He's got he's got a really strong base and has developed kind of the the Trump following and the grassroots. And, you know, Jennifer Carnahan gets talked about a lot, too. So who knows in this one? I agree. It's, it's hard to tell. I do think some of those endorsements mattered this week. Absolutely. Well, Mary Hammer, I hope you enjoy your Easter Sunday. We'll talk next month and maybe we'll know something more, but next month when we talk, we'll at least be closer to the end of the legislative session. So we'll know whether or not they'll get something done. Excellent. You've been listening to Sunday Take on News Talk 830 WCCO. You can always follow me on Twitter at Ploys Holson or check in every Monday through Thursday at 620 when I talk to Vanita about the politics of the day. Thanks for listening.